All right, we are in our third week of our series from Colossians, Supremacy and Sufficiency. Last weekend, I was, uh, spent some time in airports, and I was, I was thinking about airports, and if airports had feelings and personalities and, and emotions, I would think that airports would have uh, this sort of inferiority complex or this abandonment complex, because nobody actually wants to be at the airport, right? Everybody goes there for one reason, to leave there. And every extra minute you have to spend there that you didn't plan on spending there is a negative experience, right? And so, you know, when I was thinking about airports, no one actually wants to be there. The only reason anyone actually goes to an airport is to leave an airport. And uh, no one's really happy to be there. Even the people that are happy about where they're going, they're not happy about being at the airport. They're just happy about where they're going to be eventually. And so airports are interesting places to look around because it's such a uh, mosaic of different types of people. But really, for the most part, no one looks that happy. No one looks that excited to be there. People, when you look around airports, are pretty miserable. Some of them are anxious about their flight. Some of them are frustrated that they just dropped $20 on a 20-ounce soda and a bag of chips, right? Uh, Some of them are frustrated because their flight was delayed or whatever. And so you look around these airports, and no one's super happy to be there. No one's very excited. It's kind of a drab, dreary environment. And last Saturday, I flew home from Appleton, Wisconsin, and I flew through O'Hare, which is my least favorite airport uh, to connect in, flew through, flew through Chicago, and I had a three-hour layover, which I wasn't super excited about. And so I'm walking through uh, the terminal, and I'm just looking for a comfortable place to sit because, you know, you got that much time. I had my laptop with me. I was like, I'm going to sit, and I'm just going to do some work while I'm here. So I'm looking for a place that, that's comfortable. I'm looking for an outlet that actually can give power to my computer. And as I'm walking through the terminals in O'Hare, I walk by and these doors open to my left and I look in and it looks like this. And it's like, it's like the choirs of angels, uh, choirs of angels in heaven just saying like, ah, like I, I looked and it was, it was the United Club. And I looked in there and it was like a little glimpse into heaven. Everybody looks so happy in there. And everybody looked comfortable, and they're sitting on their, their couches and plugged into outlets that actually work and free food and free drinks. And here I am just kind of like dragging myself through the halls of this terminal, which, of course, is a terrible name for an airport, but that's what they call it. Uh, and you're walking through, and I look in, and all I could think about as I walked by was this, how do I get in there? How do I get in there. Like, I felt like I was on the outside of something wonderful, and I desperately wanted to get in there. And so I went on my phone, I started searching United Club. How do I get in there? And there's different ways you can get in there. You can be a frequent flyer, and then you get enough points, and then you get in the United Club. I don't fly that much. Or you can actually buy your way into United Club, but it's like $70 just just to go in once. So obviously, I wasn't going to do that, and didn't want to have to explain that expense to my wife. So, um, So I just kept going and just kind of stayed out in the dreary drab airport while all the, all the happy people went in there. I think, I think in life it seems like everyone is trying to find their way in to something that they don't feel like they're in on. Uh, and we all have different ways of doing this. So whether it's the relationships that we form, we think that this relationship will get us in, or the accomplishments or our achievements, our, our career, maybe it's the accumulation of wealth or the accumulation of experiences. We're all looking for a way in. 
And that inner circle that we're trying to get into, it's all about having access, it's all about having power, gaining control, having influence, or finding things like what Jason spoke about, significance and security. I think every single one of us, if we're honest, throughout life, we're all looking for a way in to something. C.S. Lewis was giving a guest lecture in 1944 at King's College, which is located at the University of London. And he said this, he said that the desire to be in the inner circle is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. What he's saying is it's one of the greatest, most prevalent motivations in the human heart. The reason why we do what we do most frequently is because we're trying to get in to the inner ring. And then he says this, of all passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. The drive to be in the inner circle. And we've been studying the book of Colossians, and we've been looking at this church in Colossae, and Paul is writing this letter to this church, trying to warn them, instruct them on what it looks like to be the people of God. And what we've learned is that there are false teachers in this church, and they are teaching heresy, and they're they are spreading their lies. And one of the lies that they're spreading is that there are ways in with God that have nothing to do with Jesus. Or there are ways into God that actually complete what Jesus has done for you. So they were saying, yes, Jesus sort of got you in, but you need more things now if you're really going to get in with God. The desire to be in the inner circle. So let's look at our text this morning where Paul is warning them about the dangers of these counterfeit ways in to God. I'm reading from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. It should be in your handout, or if you have your scriptures, you can open up. Colossians 2, 16 to 23. I'm reading to you from the ESV translation. It'll also be on the screen. Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or, which, or, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. He says, these are all shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, and puffed up without reason by his sensuous, sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but... And this is the key. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay. So what happens in this text? I know it's not the easiest text. It's a little uh, hard to navigate, but we're going to walk through it together this morning. Paul warns them of three counterfeit ways in. Three different things that people are turning to to get in with God instead of trusting in Jesus. And then he ends up saying at the end, here's why it doesn't work. Okay, so that's kind of the journey we're going to go on together this morning. We're going to look at the three things that Paul warns them about, and then we're going to look at the two reasons why it doesn't work, okay? In this text, he's warning against three counterfeit ways in. And let me say this. If, if you're a Christ follower, then I really want you to lean in 
I really want you to pay attention because what happens with Christians is we don't tend to follow down any one of these paths wholeheartedly. We don't, we don't say, I reject what Christ has done and I embrace this. What we do is we bring them together. We say yes to Jesus and yes to one of these three. So pay very close attention as we talk about these three. Not that you've probably taken it on completely as your way in with God, but maybe there's a syncretism of trusting in Jesus plus one of these three. And if you're maybe visiting or checking it out, you're not a Christ follower, then I would really think, I would really encourage you to lean in too, because it's possible that you think one of these three actually is Christianity. And you're rejecting the Christian faith based on something that actually isn't the Christian faith. And what a shame if at the end of your life you realize you rejected a counterfeit version of Christianity when the real Christianity was what you needed and wanted all along. So it's important this morning that we all are listening and leaning in. So the first way, the first counterfeit way is this. It's called the way of legalism, the way of legalism. And in this context, this form of legalism was really about two things. It was about diet, what you eat, and it was about days. So let's talk about this. I just want to explain what it meant then so we can understand what it means now. First, diet. So some were saying that the way to God and spiritual fullness had to be completed by or enhanced by returning to the Old Testament dietary laws. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God gave his people, the people of Israel, some very specific foods that they were to eat and not to eat. Some foods were categorized as clean, and some foods were categorized as unclean. And the truth is, is that there actually were very wise, practical, medical, physical reasons, in many cases, why God did that. But there are also really great spiritual reasons why God did that. He wanted them to be a different type of people who stood out from the other people who made different decisions than the other people. But when Jesus came, all of those dietary laws were abolished. They no longer were necessary. We know this in Mark 7 and in Matthew 15. In both places, the Pharisees are offended by the way Jesus eats or the way he approaches eating. And Jesus, in both of those texts, he declares that all foods are clean. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, comes to this conclusion. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. And so both Jesus and Paul are saying, the dietary laws of the Old Testament had their place and their purpose, but you do not return to them to complete, because Christ has now fulfilled every law, and he has abolished these dietary laws. The New Testament scriptures are unified in teaching us that all food and drink are lawful, we are not to judge others, and we are not allow anyone to pass religious judgment on us in regards to food and drink. But that's what was happening in Colossae, okay? So diet. The other thing that was happening here was days. The Jews had their special feast days, the Passover and the Feast of the Tabernacles, different things that they celebrated. They had their new moon celebrations. They had the Sabbath. In verse 17, we read it together, said this, that those things were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Those things were pointing to something beyond themselves. They were not the stopping point. They were a sign pointing forward. Imagine that you and your family are going on a vacation to Disney World, and when you get about three miles away from Disney World, you start seeing signs for Disney World. Imagine that you pull over at the first sign, and you tell your family to get out and say, we're here. Have fun. We're here. What would they say? No, Dad, Dad, this is just the sign. This is pointing to the real thing. The real thing is so much better. 
And what was happening is they were trying to put their hope and trust in something that was meant to be just a shadow, just a foreshadowing, just pointing. So all of those feasts were given to reveal something about the nature of God. And, and it's fine to still remember them and celebrate them, of course, but they're not our hope. Our hope is now in Jesus. And, and the Sabbath was a wonderful and still continues to be an important reminder of the rest that we are in to enter into. But now you know who the true and better Sabbath is, Jesus Jesus is the true and better Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, and we enter into the rest from our work because he's worked perfectly on our behalf. So there's the shadow, there's the substance, and they were turning to the shadow, and Paul's saying, no, you need the real thing, Jesus. And so Paul is saying, your salvation is not found in keeping days or keeping a specific diet, but your salvation is found in being in Christ. All right? Now, that's what it meant then, but we don't really wrestle with those things quite now. Uh, what does it mean now? Well, let's define legalism. What is legalism? I, I, here's, here's one definition that I came up with. Legalism is following my own set of rules in order to get in with God and others, okay? So legalism is following a set of rules, usually defined by me, following my own set of rules in order to get in with God and get in with others. So here's two things that are very important to understand about legalism. Number one, it's not about what you do, it's about why you're doing it. So two Christians could have the exact same lifestyles, but one could be doing it in order to get in with God and the other one could be doing it as a response of worship, knowing that they've already been brought into God by Jesus. And it's the same behavior, but it's two very different motivations. So legalism is less about what you do. So you can't call somebody a legalist just because they live their lives at a higher quote unquote standard than you do. That's not fair. It's why they do it. But here's the real tell with legalism. How do you treat the people who don't follow the rules the way you follow them? How do you look at them? John shared from God's heart this morning to us about love for people who maybe are different than us. Maybe love for people who are in different places in life than us. That's the real tell on legalism. How do you view people who don't follow the rules the way you do? Now, why is legalism so appealing? I'll give you four quick reasons. Number one, legalism is appealing because when, we, when we're legalists, we know exactly where we stand. We love rankings, right? We love to know here's the top 10 places to get burgers in Syracuse, and here's the best 20 basketball players of all time. Like, we love lists, and, and we love stuff like this, and we like to know where we stand. We like to measure up so we know who we're better than. Here's the problem. Grace is hard to give when you're busy keeping score. When you're keeping score, you're gonna find it really hard to give and receive grace. Another appealing of, uh, appeal to legalism is it helps us feel superior to the people who can't, quote-unquote, keep up with us and all of our righteous activity. Another appeal of legalism is it forces others to live like us, to be like us, validating our choices and who we are. And then the real spiritually um, twisted reason why legalism is so appealing is because when we think that we've kept the rules well enough, then we actually think that we've put God in debt to us instead of us being fully indebted to God. If it's not all grace, if we've done our part, then God sort of owes us. He sort of should keep us out of difficult times and keep us from suffering terrible losses. But if it's all grace, then we're in debt to God. He's not in debt to us. And of course, that's not what the human heart wants. So what are the dangers of legalism? Here's one of the obvious dangers of legalism. Legalism is judgmental. It is. It judges people and it draws lines. Earlier this week, I heard a pastor say, whenever you draw a line separating yourself from a different other type of person, Jesus immediately crosses that line 
stands with them and invites you to join him. I was like, wow, that's convicting. As soon as you start drawing lines saying, there are the bad people and here am I over here, Jesus will cross over that line, he'll stand with them and he'll say, why don't you come stand with me? And legalism won't allow you to do that. It causes you to distance yourself from people who sin differently than you do. Legalism is joyless because without grace, there's no wonder, there's no worship. Legalism demands uniformity. We all gotta be clones, we all gotta, but God loves diversity. Look around this room, look around creation. God is a creative designer and he loves diversity. He loves the ways that we worship him and serve him and follow him. And legalism ultimately produces a me-centered faith. It's about what I've done and less about what God has done in Jesus Christ for me. So legalism is a, is a real problem, all right? Now, before I move on to the second thing, let me address some misconceptions about legalism because whenever we talk about legalism, uh, we tend maybe to have our own ideas and thoughts of who is a legalist and who isn't. So here's some misconceptions about legalism. Here's some things that are not legalism. And the first one is this, spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines is not legalism. Spiritual disciplines like reading your Bible, praying, being a part of a church, giving, those things are not legalism. Now, can they become legalism? Anything can. But they, in and of themselves, are not. And sometimes there's people who are like, I don't want to be a legalist, so when I don't feel like reading my Bible, I don't read my Bible, because then I'd be a hypocrite. Well, good luck, good luck getting through life, first off. <laughs> there's a lot of times you have to do things you don't feel. How many of you go to work only when you are excited to go to work? <laughs> Nobody, right? How many of you choose to eat well and exercise only when you really feel you don't. There are seasons in life where you have to, moments in life where you have to choose to do something and the feeling's not there. And sometimes the feeling follows and sometimes it never does. But you know it's the right thing. You know it's the best thing for you. And when it comes to spiritual disciplines, if you sit around waiting to feel like you really want to spend time in scripture instead of watching that next episode on Netflix, you're never going to read scripture because your heart is not turned that way fully, right? We're battling within ourselves with our old nature. And so don't get legalism confused with self-discipline and with spiritual uh, formation tools, right? Dallas Willard's quote, which I've shared before, is so helpful on this. He says, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And so the idea that like, well, I'm a Christian, it shouldn't really be hard for me, I shouldn't be putting any effort in. No, no, no. Grace and effort obviously are often link hands together to accomplish work in your heart. It's grace and effort, but it's opposed to earning. The second thing that legalism is not is it's not personal convictions. Some of you have personal convictions, and sometimes they're shaped by your life experiences. So let me just kind of pick a hot topic that I think there's room for personal convictions according to Scripture. Scripture has some very clear teachings when it comes to alcohol, right? Scripture talks about drunkenness being a type of behavior that's not in keeping with somebody whose heart is trusting in Jesus. We don't turn to that to escape, to find pleasure, because everything we need we've found in Christ. So Scripture is pretty clear on that topic of drunkenness, but Scripture is not clear on, on actually drinking alcohol. And there's actually room in the teaching of Scripture to say, I will abstain or I will responsibly drink, have a drink with the meal, okay? And so, but different people based on different upbringings and different cultures, they feel differently about this. I remember being in England and I was on a missions trip and I went to a board meeting with a church there and they had their board meeting at a pub and they all had a pint. And I was like, uh, I, can't, I can't. See, I, 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 I choose to abstain and I'll explain why in a minute. I don't, but, and they're like, what's your problem? I was like, well, we, I don't, we feel differently, I guess. 
in some circles in America about alcohol than I guess everyone does over here. And of course, it's true in most of Europe. And they said to me this. They said, okay, so we drink, you guys all overeat. What's the difference? And I was like, all right, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> keep them up, keep them up. That's a low blow. Like, <laughs> Now, my dad, many of you know, he abstained and he taught abstaining as the best practice for believers. And I think out of wisdom, you could make that teaching. However, if you really pushed him, he knew that scripture didn't say this is absolute standard of righteousness. He knew that. But he also came out of a background where it was a struggle. And so out of his background and his upbringing and his struggles, he knew that the wisest thing for him to do was to abstain. So here's what I'm saying. There's still room for personal conviction. So what you can't say is, oh, you won't have a drink? Oh, you won't watch that movie? Oh, you won't go to that place? Oh, you're such a legalist. You can't say that because people have personal convictions and they're allowed to live them out as the Spirit leads them to do. Don't get legalism confused with lordship, right? Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord over our lives, we're not just asking the question, is it clearly right or wrong in Scripture? We're asking the question, how is my Lord leading me in this area of my life? Is it wise? Is this the way that I can honor him and serve him? And considering the people that I'm sharing life with and the people I'm trying to reach, okay? So that's, 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 that's one example. Because Paul doesn't say, isn't it interesting? Paul doesn't forbid them from, from special days or special diets. He doesn't forbid it. He just says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you on these things. So he's not rejecting their right to have their personal convictions. He's rejecting the rights of anyone to judge others by those convictions or to compel other people to live by their personal convictions and preferences. Is that helpful? Okay. So legalism is not spiritual discipline. It's not personal conviction. And the last one is it's not, I'll be quick with this, it's not community standards. So when I went to Bible school, I had to wear a tie to class every day, and I hated it. And I loved calling the people their legalists. I'm like, oh, you're legalists because you're making us wear our ties and follow your rules. But it wasn't legalism. It was community standards. It was like, if you're going to be a part of this community, here's the standards we expect you to live by. And that's not legalism. That's an agreement on the front end of the person. So back to the alcohol conversation, I don't drink because I, have voluntary co- I voluntarily cooperate with the assemblies of God. What that means is I am an ordained minister with a denomination or a fellowship known as the Assemblies of God, which this church is a part of. And part of being an ordained minister with the Assemblies of God is you voluntarily cooperate and agree to abstain, okay? They're not saying that abstaining from alcohol is an issue of righteousness. They're saying if you want to hold credentials with our community, this is the standard we're asking of you. It's not legalism. It's community standards, okay? So don't get confused on this because sometimes we swing so far that we think, well, no spiritual disciplines, no personal convictions, no community standards. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is simply saying to them, you can't work your way in, right? And you can't ask other people to live according to the standards and convictions that maybe the Spirit has revealed to you. It'll make you a judgmental community. You won't be the church that God intends you to be. All right. So the way of legalism. Secondly, here we see Paul warning about the way of mysticism. Now, I want to say this about mysticism. With legalism, I put the disclaimer on the back end. With mysticism, I want to put the disclaimer up front. And the disclaimer up front is this. Christian mysticism, uh, supernatural, maybe mystical experiences, they are not evil, of course, in of themselves. Because the end goal of all of that is a deeper knowledge of God. 
However, and, and well, let me say this. God, we believe in this church that God still speaks through his people. That's what you, some of you experienced this morning in the service, that when we gather together, not all that God has to say always has to come through the microphone or through the stage. Sometimes when we gather, God wants to say something through his people to his people to build them up and edify them and encourage them. And I want you to know that as pastors in this church, we, we pastor the use of the gifts. Publicly and privately, we, we pastor that so that it's a safe place for people to hear from God and to bring others. So God still speaks that way. God speaks in vis- visions, I believe. I believe that God speaks through dreams. And I believe that God can speak through other supernatural ways. I don't think God stopped doing what he was doing in the Bible. I think God still does those things. He didn't stop doing those things. But, and here's the, big, here's, here's the big pause, but our faith is not rooted in those experiences. Our faith is rooted in Jesus. And be careful about your faith being rooted in your experiences because people can talk you out of your experiences. And also, we can quite honestly create certain things in our own uh, world, in our own psyche. So what is mysticism? Here's what mysticism is. Mysticism is depending on mystical experiences to get in with God instead of Jesus. Mysticism is chasing after mystical, supernatural things in order to get in with God. It's, It's pursuing experiences more than it's pursuing Jesus. It's trying to open your spirit and your mind to to mystical things more than you actually open up your Bible. And sometimes people, whenever somebody says, God is silent, he's not speaking to me, what I want to say to them is, he's already spoken to us. He still speaks, yes, but don't say God is silent when your Bible's closed. Because God is speaking. God has given us the word, capital letter W in Jesus, That's the real word that we need. He also has given us his written word. Does he still speak words to us today through his servants? He does. And those things are wonderful. And I would describe them as supplemental and complementary and vital and useful, but they're not foundational. You don't build your faith on those things. And there was this mentality in the Colossae church that you needed to have special revelation in order to get in with God. And that's what Paul talks about, insisting on the worship of angels or going on in detail about visions, which was a technical phrase in the Greek that described someone who was being admitted to a higher level in one of the mystery religions. So the people in Colossae and these teachers, they were acting and behaving spiritually elite like they were better than the others because of the experiences, the mystical experiences they were having. But here's the real sign of someone who's had a real mystical experience with Jesus. They're not, they don't feel spiritually elite. They're humble. They're, they're broken. What happened to Paul when he had this mystical vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus? It changed. He didn't become proud about it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul, the same writer, he talks about this amazing vision he has where he was caught up into the third heaven. And what's interesting is that he's so hesitant. The only reason he even mentions this is because he's doing it in response to all of his opponents. They're boasting about their spiritual revelation. So Paul's saying, listen, I need to share this with you. He's not not eager to share it. He's hesitant to share it. And one of the indicators that he's hesitant to share it is this. He doesn't even speak about himself in the first person. Do you know this text? And you can read it later. 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I know a person who had this vision. It's him. He's talking about himself, but he's so distancing himself. He's not basing his standing and his validity as a minister of the gospel on that. He's so hesitant to connect his standing in Christ to this powerful vision he had that he's talking about himself in the third person. I know a person. 
And then if you read the entirety of the text, he very quickly returns right after mentioning that vision to boasting in what? His weakness. And that's where we find the phrase thorn in the flesh, where he talks about this thorn in the flesh that kept him weak. And he said, I will boast all the more in my weakness because in my weakness, Christ is made strong. So we are not brought in with God based on mystical events or transcendental experiences. We are in because the mystery of the gospel was revealed in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus did say that signs and wonders will follow those who believe, but he didn't say those who believe will follow after signs and wonders, right? We don't chase after it. We stay faithful to the gospel, faithful to the work of the kingdom, and when God supernaturally wants to deliver a sign or a wonder, which, by the way, the greatest sign and the greatest wonder is your life changed by the gospel. That's, there's no greater sign. You know, I have a little girl who has cerebral palsy, and we pray for her, and we believe that God has good things for her, and if God wants to heal her, we know that he can. We also know that he can use her for the kingdom the way that she is, but if he were to physically heal her, here's one of the things I would want her to know for the rest of her life. The greatest sign and wonder about you is not your physical healing. The greatest sign and wonder about you is your spiritual healing, that your heart that was dead in sin has been made alive in Christ. The greatest sign and wonder is a change. So you all, those of you that trust in Jesus and have been changed by him and are being changed by him, you know what you are? You're a sign and you're a wonder. All right? So the third way is this, and this is maybe the most unknown way, the way of asceticism. Now, what is asceticism? I know it's not a word we use a lot. Asceticism, well, here's a dictionary definition. And then I'll give you my definition. The dictionary definition of asceticism is this. Severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. So here's how I would say it. Asceticism is abstaining from good things, things given to us by God to enjoy in order to get in with God. So it's abstaining from the good things that God has given us in order to get in with God. And the danger with asceticism is that they were leveraging it. So they were saying, I will not do this. I will not eat this. I will suffer this way. They're creating physical suffering for themselves, thinking that that would somehow make them more right before God, that they would achieve spiritual power or special revelation by uh, really starving themselves from things that are actually good. And the church, the church has this history of uh, people doing this, going into excess in the rejection of beautiful and good things. Things like marriage. People who reject marriage, it's a good gift from God. People who reject sex or parenthood or the beauty of God's creation or food or drink or relationship or even the rejection of self. And Paul is saying here, this self-made religion doesn't do any good. This sort of abstaining so that you think it will get you in with God, God's given us these things to enjoy and to worship him with. Now, the danger, of course, with this is when we begin to worship those things. Those things are not been created and given to us to worship, but we can worship God in our enjoyment of them, right? And so here's one of the issues. Here's probably the biggest issue with asceticism. It has this mindset that the problem is outside of me, and I need to avoid it and starve myself of it. But the scriptures make it clear, your biggest problem is never outside of you. Your biggest problem is always inside of you. It's your heart. And you can't, avoid, you can't avoid your heart and your lusts and your desires. They need to be exposed for what they are, and they need to be replaced by a greater desire, right? So here's a summary of these three counterfeit ways. Legalism, following rules to get in with God, which is self-righteous, joyless, and judgmental. Mysticism, which is chasing experiences over pursuing Jesus. 
basing our lives on experiences, basing our faith on experiences and not on who Jesus is, what happens is you develop a proud elitist spirit and it contributes nothing to true worship. And then asceticism, which is restraining ourselves or abstaining from things that God has actually given us to enjoy, thinking it will get us in with God, thinking that it will make us more holy when it actually feeds our flesh. Let me, let me say this little disclaimer about asceticism. The Bible does teach on fasting, which is a Christian spiritual discipline. So there are times where we may go without so that we can specifically seek God, pray, God, pray to God, worship him. The Bible also says that there's, I think there's also wisdom in abstaining from certain, certain types of pleasure, even ones that are not necessarily bad, but maybe they're just taking too much of your time. Maybe it's a waste of your time, and so you need to make some decisions. Or there are actual things that are addictive and destructive pleasures in life that we really need to. So I'm not talking about wisdom in those areas. I'm talking about good things that God has given us. Abstaining from them does not make you more righteous in God's eyes. You're righteous because of your trust in Christ. Okay, so in closing, here's two reasons why those ways don't work. And it's right here in the text. Can we look at verse 23? It says again, these have indeed... He's, Paul summarizing. He's like, these different ways, legalism, mysticism, asceticism, they have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's the first reason why they don't work. These things do not change your heart. They might change your behavior, but they don't change your heart. You know, it's very hard to change behavior. And uh, those of you that are parents or grandparents, just when you think that you have some ability to change somebody's behavior, it's bedtime. <laughs> and you're trying to get your kids to go to bed, and you realize, I have no power to change somebody else's behavior. Recently, so my littlest one, Madeline, who's four, whenever she gets in trouble, I know you, those of you that see her in church are like, how could she ever, how could she ever <laughs> get in trouble? But when she gets in trouble, she has this natural reaction where she starts to laugh. She's a laugher. Any of you laughers when you're in trouble? She's, she's a, I was a crier. I cried before. My dad would always joke, you cried more before you got spanked than after you got spanked. Like, <laughs> I, I, I would cry from the second I was in trouble. I just saw all that guilt and shame. Um, but she's a laugher, and she just laughs in your face while you're trying to discipline her. And so finally, at some point, uh, I have to raise my voice a little bit so she knows it's serious. And I look at her and I say, Madeline, it's not funny. It's not funny. And with her little face, she looks at me, she goes, it's a little bit funny. <laughs> I was like, you got your mother's spirit right in you, don't you? You got your... We can't change people's behavior on the outside by yelling at them and, and, oh, I'm sorry. We might be able to change their behavior, but ultimately, even if you get, even if I got my daughter to behave by bullying her and yelling at her, do you think in her heart she's changed? No, she walks away angrier than ever and more rebellious than she was to begin with. These things do not, they can change our behavior, but they cannot change our heart. Here's the real danger of legalism and mysticism and asceticism. They may motivate us to serve our heart, our heart idols in a more respectable way or in a more religious way, but they do not expose our idols for what they are, the worthlessness that they have, and they do not change what we worship. If you want to change your behavior, you have to change who you worship. That's how we change. We need to see Jesus. So it can't change the heart, but the second reason it doesn't change is this. It's not connected to the head. Did you hear that? Did you see that in the text? It said all these things are not connected to the head. What does that mean? Well, Jesus Christ is the head of the body. And the real danger of things like legalism and keeping rules is that you can do those things without Christ. You don't need Christ to follow the rules. You need Christ to have a new heart. You need Christ to love different things. 
And so the answer to legalism is continual, ongoing realization of the grace that's available in Jesus Christ. Why are you trying to follow rules? You can't, get your, you can't work your way in. Accept what Jesus has done on your behalf. Receive the grace of God and let the grace of God change you from the inside out. The answer to mysticism is realizing how profoundly and surely we are related to Jesus Christ. You're united to Christ. You're in Christ. Your life is hidden in him. Why are you chasing experiences when you're in Christ? If he wants to give you the experience, he can, but remain in Christ and root yourself in him. And the answer to asceticism is believing that we have died, we've been buried, and we're resurrected with Christ. So we've died to these things that don't have power over us anymore, but we've been resurrected with Christ so we can enjoy the things that God has given us to enjoy. When Jesus was resurrected, did he come back floating around like a spirit, like a ghost? He came back with a physical body. He ate food. Like, he, that's the way it's going to be for us. Like, these physical things, are our bodies and the things that God has given us to enjoy, they're not to be avoided. They're to be enjoyed and stewarded, and we're to worship God through the use of those things. We're not to uh, run away from them, thinking that they're wicked and they're evil, and somehow we'll be more righteous by avoiding them. See, the answer to all of this is found at the foot of the cross. What works? What gets us in? Let me finish with this. Paul keeps writing. You know, years later, after this letter was written, translators and and, uh, people who are responsible for putting the Bible together, they put in the chapters, they put in the verses, and they're helpful, right? They help us find stuff. But they weren't there originally. So we got to be careful about, like, stopping at the end of chapters and thinking that the very next verse isn't as connected. And in this case, it's very much connected. So Paul says, after all of this, he says, you can't, you can't follow the rules to get yourself in. You can't have enough spiritual experiences to get yourself in. You cannot withhold from yourself the pleasures of this world to get yourself in. Here's what he says in the beginning of Colossians chapter 3. And let me read these four verses to you. It'll be on the screen. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are of earth. And based on what he just said, we're not, we know that Paul, again, is not saying, he's not contradicting himself, so he's not saying that you have to somehow escape from this place, but he's saying don't rely upon the ways of this world to get in, but look to Christ, things above. Verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a beautiful, beautiful promise. You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, when he returns, then you also will appear with him in glory. You don't work your way in. Don't experience your way in. You don't starve your way in. You worship your way in. You look at Jesus. You set your mind on things above. You look to Christ, seated at the right-hand side of the Father, Seated means his work is complete and finished. He's fully satisfied with what he's done for you and me. It's sufficient for all. It's enough. We don't add to it. We receive it and we let it change us. Worship your way in. Look at Christ. Look and live. Let's pray together this morning.